0: everybody, and welcome to New Consciousness Review Radio, where we meet the people whose books and films are inspiring a new story for humanity. I'm your host, Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Matthew Fox, a theologian, an educator, and a modern-day prophet whose new book, The Pope's War, Why Ratzinger's Secret Crusade Has Imperiled the Church and How It Can Be Saved. This book calls out the profound moral and spiritual failings of the Catholic Church, its leadership, and its institutions. Matthew Fox has had a lifelong passion to bring the real teachings of Christ back to the Church. He founded the Institute of Culture and Creation Spirituality, although he was forced to leave it and eventually to leave the Dominican order, by Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became the current Pope Benedict. He was quickly welcomed into the Anglican Communion of the Episcopal Diocese of Northern California where he has been a priest since 1994. He started the University of Creation Spirituality, now called Wisdom University, and has taught at Stanford, at Vancouver School of Theology, and several others. Dear to His Heart is a pilot education project for inner-city teens that he launched in Oakland, California. Matthew Fox is the author of 28 books and the recipient of the Peace Abbey Courage of Conscience Award, whose other recipients have included the Dalai Lama, Mother Teresa, Rosa Parks, and Maya Angelou. He has also received the Gandhi King Ikeda Peace Award for Dedication to Peace, Unity, nonviolence, and justice. Matthew Fox, it's a real honor to welcome you to New Consciousness Review.
1: Thank you, Miriam. Good to be with you.
0: You know, I found your book very depressing, but it's a story that I guess needs to be heard. Like many people, I am pretty cynical about organized religion, but your book was pretty shocking even to me. And I hardly even know where to begin, but let's begin with the Pope. You talk about major changes that came over him in 1968 when he turned his back on the reforms of Vatican II. Could you give our listeners a sense of the man that you describe in your book as he moved into positions of power and actually became a modern-day inquisitor?
1: Well, let me say, first of all, that like you, I was depressed writing writing this book. And uh, most of my books do not depress me because... I, I I'm a spiritual theologian, so I get to choose topics that um, are uplifting. And in the middle of writing this book, I had to put it on the shelf because I felt like um, like Oscar uh, Oscar the Grouch on Sesame Street <laughs> was living in a garbage can. That's why I felt. <laughs> so I put it on the shelf, not knowing if I'd ever finish it. And then I wrote a book on the Christian mystics. And that's what inspired me and enlivened me because that's the best side of the of the church, and uh, that's the treasure we need to save from this burning building. But then I was energized to to complete this book. So I just want to say you're not the only one who's depressed by the book, <laughs> but but it is true. The last quarter of the book is about where we go from here, and I think that's a little less depressing because it's about an invitation for us to tap into our creativity. But back to your question, yes. Um, Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger was actually part of the uh, Second Vatican Council, which historians have called the most important religious event of the 20th century, which brought together um, not only over 2,000 bishops and cardinals, but uh, all the best thinkers of Catholicism of the late 20th century, many of whom had been silenced or or, uh, condemned under the previous papacy. And so it really was a burst of energy, and it also brought together uh, Jewish and Protestant and uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, observers, all of whom were inspired, and many of whom have told me that they are depressed. They're depressed too by what's happened with the church since. Very depressed. Uh, Harvey Cox told me, you know, the theologian at Harvard University, of Protestant. He told me about I don't know ten years ago we met. He said he's been in depression ever since uh, the, the the two. Uh, uh, Papacies, the present one the one before, as you say, you turn their back on Vatican II. But uh, Ratching was part of the original um, thrust, and I have quotes in this book from his e- period when he was um, progressive and open-minded and liberal. But in 1968, of course, there was a big revolution around the world in education, <laughs> certainly in America and Berkeley and Madison, Wisconsin, and other places, but also in Paris, where I was studying at the time. The students uh, revolted and brought the entire De Gaulle's government down, um, and um, and also in Germany. So um, where Ratzinger was teaching at University of Tübingen, the students uh, went into the um, theology faculty one day when the theology faculty was meeting and they took it over and they, they ranted and raved about their concerns and they really did have concerns things were worse in germany than in the united states or in the french educational system at the time but they say that one faculty member uh... stood up and walked out of the meeting and that was rotzinger mm-hmm. and they say the next time he saw him he was a changed man that he was uh, he was a complete uh, conservative after that i think it had a lot to do with his up his uh, uh, rearing uh, coming of age during the Nazi times uh, in Germany. And I think the chaos was just too much for him. And I think he reverted, reverted to an extreme form of control. He himself uh, has talked about uh, totalitarianism, that we need totalitarianism in the Church in order to fight totalitarianism outside the Church, which I find a rather suspicious logic myself. (laughs) 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 But after that, I mean, people who knew him well, uh, Hans Kung, who was a professor who invited Rothsinger to that faculty, but also one of his students who um, uh, studied theology with him in Germany and then years later went to confront him when he was cardinal and chief inquisitor and said, how can you abandon theology itself and attack theologians all over the world like you're doing and uh, he left that meeting and said, the man has sold his soul to, uh, for the purple, that is, to rise up the ladder. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's, you know, in a nutshell, that's uh, a little of his story.
0: Mm. You started uh, this institution of creation spirituality. What was it about the notion of creation spirituality that Ratzinger found so threatening?
1: Mm. Well, he, he um, gave a list of objections to my theology. The first was, he said, I'm a feminist theologian. Now, I consider that a compliment, actually, but I didn't know it was a heresy. But Ratzinger is extremely sensitive, shall we say, to uh, women's uh, theology, women's rights. Uh, it's sensitive in the sense of um, ready to pounce on it at any chance he can. Um, his second objection was that I called God Mother, again, another issue of women, and the feminine side of God, of which she is totally terrified. Um, and, of course, I proved that all the medieval mystics worthy of the name called God Mother, including Meister Eckhart, of Norwich, Mechthilder Magdeburg, uh, and others. Uh, another objection was that I worked too closely with Native Americans. I'm not sure what that means, but I do know I've learned a lot from Native Americans. Uh, spiritual practice and um, philosophy, and uh, I consider it extremely um, evolved and wise. We need their perspective today. Um, Of course, he did not like my book on original blessing. He's much more committed to original sin, (laughs) and yet I've proven in that book that Jesus never heard of original sin. No Jew has ever heard of original sin. How can you build a religion on Jesus' teaching when he never even heard the concept. The first time original sin was used was in the 4th century with St. Augustine, which is also the first time that the Church took over the empire. So I think original sin has more to to do with running an empire efficiently uh, than it does with uh, 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 preaching the message of Jesus. So the list goes on like that. It's not very edifying. (laughs) And I think it's much more political. It's... It, it's like a Rorschach test of uh, of uh, who the Vatican is. Oh, he complains that I call God child. Well, I don't know what Christmas is about if not that. You know, checker, <laughs> yeah, the great 14th century mystics said God is novissimus, the newest thing there is, and that so so God is always young, as he says, and always new. So I think that what that reveals just is his a Rorschach is a on that feminine side of God reveal his sexism. So his attacks on on the, the youthfulness of God reveal his um, his cynicism and his adultism.
0: Well, I find the whole obsession of the church with sexuality to be incomprehensible in a spiritual institution. It's it's uh, it, it really feels sick. How how did this come about?
1: Well, first of all, I fully agree. It is sick. I mean, it's, this is psychology 101, isn't it? You're obsessed with sex. And, you, and, and remember, I mean, they have attacked mercilessly. By they, I mean the previous Pope and, and Ratzinger, and using Ratzinger as a hatchet man for, for over 20 years as the chief inquisitor. They attacked the wonderful movement of liberation theology in base communities in Latin America, which are made up of tremendously courageous um, uh, Christians who have stood up to military regimes and dictators like Pinochet who tortured them, murdered them, killed them. Of course, Oscar Romero was one of their leaders. He was murdered while, while saying mass. Uh, I talk in this book I, some length about Bishop Casadalaga, this wonderful, saintly, mystical, poetic bishop in the Amazon who, who is busy defending the rainforest. And, uh, and the indigenous people, the rainforest, he was actually silenced by Ratzinger. So, I mean, it goes on and on. So, uh, you know, I'm getting back to your question, but what I want to do is point out that, on the one hand, they are attacking adult, what I would call adult um, morality, which is the struggle for justice against injustice. They're attacking that officiously. But on the other hand, as you say, they are preoccupied, completely preoccupied, with sins of putting condoms on, you know, in a time of AIDS in Africa and and birth control. But in fact, there there are plenty of human beings on the planet, and and the whole planet is suffering from from uh, the excess mm. of of human uh, footprints uh, yeah. on the planet. So, um, you know, and then and this this uh attitude of being a peeping tom or something telling adults how to run their sexual lives and of course, the homophobia is is ratcheted up to to whole new decibels um, all this is just what you say it 's sick and um, and you say, how do we get there well, part of it is Saint Augustine, the fourth century theologian who was very um, he was neoplatonic very dualistic he, was, he also um, worked for a while in a Manichean philosophy which is extremely anti-body and anti-matter but again I think it's all part of the picture of the sexism too that they cannot find a balance in their own psyche between the yin and the yang and the feminine and the masculine or in in the divine understanding of the, the goddess and of God. Meister Eckhart says all the names we give to God come from understanding of ourselves so if you only allow male images of God at the altar in your own psyche, which is what the last two papacies have um, have, have established, then you're banishing the, the feminine in all of its forms. And then, Absolutely. of course, you have a very unbalanced sexuality.
0: Yeah. We were talking about the contribution of the mystics to this balanced view of the mother, father, God. What do the mystics have to teach us today?
1: Oh, they have so much to teach us they first of all, to um uh, put experience for everything else. you know religion um, every religion has begun with mysticism. Jesus was a mystic, a nature mystic from the wisdom tradition of Israel and um, and Buddha was a mystic, and Lao Tzu was a mystic and um, uh, the the mysticism is about the tasting the experience of the divine. But the problem is, as Father B. Griffith points out, the wonderful, mystical, uh, uh, Benedictine monk, who lived in India for over 50 years, he says that all religions begin with experience, but then you have to start speaking the experience to others and explaining it. Then you get words involved, then you get doctrine involved, and then you get uh, heresy involved and so forth. So he said, this is a danger in all religions. And that's why religious renewal is always about returning to the source, returning to experience. And that's where uh, the mystics come in. It's like the psalmist says, um, taste and see that God is good. Well, you know, no one can taste for you, and all the dogmas in the world, and all the churches in the world, and all the basilicas in the world, and all the canon laws and the cardinals in the world are are not what religion is about. Religion is about the experience of the divine, the experience of the sacred. But
0: actually, uh, established religion has almost driven a wedge between the individual and the, the numinous.
1: Well, exactly, and that 's why you need times of reformation and upheaval and that 's why Jesus came along in his time and Buddha came along in his time, and so forth that and we 're living in such a time today where clearly religion as as you said earlier it 's incomprehensible how um, off centered uh, and off message you might say uh, uh, the hierarchy of Roman Catholicism has has become. And so this is why you need a complete renewal. And of course, that's the hope. Like you said, you found the book depressing. But see, I think the book ends with a great deal of hope, because what I'm saying is, hey, uh, the good news is that the forms of religion that we've been calling Roman Catholicism are bankrupt, and, they are, and they're dead. And the Holy Spirit, I believe, has used the last two papacies to, uh, to, to bear the field so that we can start over and we can mm-hmm. get much closer to the message of Jesus and yes to our all being mystics, because mysticism is about the experience of the divine, experience of communion and union, and this is what we need to um, to balance our relationship with the, with the earth and as, as many creatures, which of course is totally out of whack today, and, but also with people of other religions and so forth. Um, mystics don't go to war over, um, over religion, it's, uh, it's other forces that use religion for, for uh, religious wars.
0: Speaking of religious wars, tell us about liberation theology and the connection between Latin America, Reagan, the CIA, and the Vatican.
1: Mm. Two months after Reagan took office in March of that year, of course he took office in January, there was a meeting in Santa Fe uh, of the CIA and, and the uh, National Security Council, and the basic question was this: What can we do to destroy liberation theology in Latin America? Because um, after the Second Vatican Council, uh, the the bishops and the theologians of Latin America, and the priests, nuns, and lay people too, felt very uh, empowered to to get more. In the struggle for their for justice and their own liberation, because Latin America, of course, was dominated by dictators at that time, and so a lot of church people um, uh, were working in grassroots groups called base communities, using the gospels as their basic reflection, and um, and of course the message in Jesus' teaching from the gospels that the Anawin, the poor, are the least of the brethren, uh, should be listened to because I am there, I am among them. And so, um, but then the CIA started spreading rumors that, oh, this is Marxism, this is Marxism. Well, uh, it isn't, it's Christianity. But anyway, um, so they they decided at this meeting, the uh, National Security Council, that they could not destroy Latin American theology, but they could divide it. They could split the church. And they... They did it this way. They went to the Pope, John Paul II, who of course was Polish, and they gave him lots and lots of cash. In fact, the head of CIA, his name was Casey, and who, by the way, he and his wife very much backed his Father Maciel, who turned out to be a complete, uh, completely sick human being. Mm. Uh, he made 29 trips personally, the head of CIA, with satchels full of cash to give to the Pope, to give to Solidarity, the union movement and Poland that was fighting the Soviets, and um, and that had its effect. Uh, it helped. It helped. It assisted in bringing down the Soviet Empire in Poland. However, there was like a quid pro quo, and in exchange, the Pope went after liberation theolo- theologians, the based community movements, and of course, they went after the peace movement in North America, such as Archbishop Hunthausen, a very saintly man in Seattle, who had the courage to stand up. Uh, uh, against uh, the Vietnam War and refused to pay his income taxes, and they even went after him. So um, uh, that's just part of the of the uh, back and forth uh, between the extreme right Catholic Casey, who was head of CIA at the time, and uh, the Pope, and uh, the attacks on the Christian theology, which really were vicious, and so much so that today they've replaced all these. Uh, Uh, justice-oriented bishops and cardinals, many of whom now are old or have died even, with Opus Dei uh, bishops and cardinals all over Latin America, and Opus Dei is an extreme right-wing group uh, uh, started by a fascist priest in Spain, and uh, it, it smacks of fascism everywhere it is.
0: Why do you think Opus Dei and the other organizations like it in other countries found such fertile ground in the Catholic Church?
1: Well, that's a really important question, but I think that uh, they appeal to the, um, the Pope, Pope John Paul II, and Ratzinger too, for several reasons. One is that they really had no theology whatsoever other than ideology. And you mentioned uh, there's, there's the Opus Dei, there's Communion and Liberation in Italy, there's a Legion of Christ, which was Father Marcel's group. Between the three of them, they have not produced one theologian. What they produce is armies of canon lawyers. They know how to game the system. And uh, we know for a fact, of course, that um, finances are a very, very big part of it. For example, when I was in Germany a few years ago, a a German uh, uh, newspaper reporter took me to tea downtown Frankfurt, and he said, look out the window, he said, you see all those skyscrapers being built? There are about six of them, right, in my view. He said they're all about finance because a head of finance is moving from Switzerland to Frankfurt because of the euro and EU. And he said at the top of every one of those skyscrapers, there will be Opus Dei. So that was a a real revelation, how deeply Opus Dei is involved in the finances, especially of Europe. Um, And, of course, they're very involved in the media in the United States. They love to go to where the power is. But the greatest trader in American history... Was this fellow about whom they wrote a, they did a mo- Hollywood did a movie, um, Hanson, who is in jail now, but he he uh, revealed more secrets and got more of our spies murdered than anyone in history, and he was Opus Day, a Daily Communicant, and an Opus Day member at the FBI, untouched for twenty years, hmm. uh, while they are while giving away all our state secrets, so. Um, they also are extremely, um, they get in line, these, these people, and that's the kind of layperson that the popes, these two popes, want. They want people who just line up and shut up and obey whatever the pope has to say. So that really appeals to them. I think the, the third thing, besides the money and the ideology, uh, they're, they're all anti-liberation theology. They're, they're, they have a preferential option for the rich and the powerful rather than for the poor. But also they produce priests because um, you, you create this very, very tight sect. It's like a sect. It definitely is a sect. Each one of these is a sect. And they um, talk about their founders as being saintly and, and even the Legion of Christ. You take vows never to um, say anything bad about the founder and so on. It's very odd. But they tend to draw a lot of, quote, vocations, unquote, both men and women who who apparently want to be uh, in this kind of a, a, a really uh, passive mode of just doing whatever they're told to do and not using their minds. And again, though, as I say, there's no theology involved. very mm. little mind work there. It's about obedience, which is really uh, scary, because isn't that what we learned from the Nazi times, that obedience can be yeah. extremely dangerous?
0: Absolutely. Well, I'm going to spare our listeners the really, really gory details. <laughs> 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 Move on.
1: Now in, you've got my interest up. <laughs> what do you think of the reading You're course? the
0: one who wrote them. <laughs> in, uh, in 2005, you created 95 theses that called for fundamental reform of the church, and you nailed them to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral, where Martin Luther nailed his original 95 theses in the 16th century. What were they about, and was this just a symbolic act, or are you seeing the beginnings of a new reformation?
1: Well, I remember the night before um, I went to Wittenberg, I was in a nearby town, I asked a Lutheran pastor there, do you think we need a reformation today? And he said, need a reformation? He said, 4% of Lutherans are practicing in Germany, so of course we need a reformation. Of course, I did that at the, at the time that uh, Ratzinger was made Pope because I just had this deep intuition. I had known the man from 12 years of battle, if you will, uh, that you know the Catholic Church was coming into a very, very, very dark period. But let me tell you, just to bring this up to date a bit, uh, last month I was in Rome because the Italians have just translated my book, Original Blessing, into Italian. But I took the occasion to go to Cardinal Law's Basilica there Cardinal Law, as you may know, was the, the Super Bowl of um, pedophile <laughs> priests because he, he uh, passed around one man who abused 150 boys uh, from parish to parish. He passed him around, and he hid over 12,000 pages of documents from the police, which they have now recouped. But instead of being in jail, uh, Cardinal Law was promoted. He was given a 4th-century Basilica Maria Maggiore in uh, Rome, to look over. And so I went to Maria Maggiore last month with my 95 theses, translated into Italian now. And we posted them at the at the front of the door there. We had a little press conference, if you will, or a number of people came. I remember one man, about 44, Italian came up to me and he said, I used to call myself a Catholic. He said, now I just call myself a Christian. And I think that's very interesting coming mm-hmm. right there in the heart of Rome. Um, but the Vatican police were there, uh, seven of them in plain clothes, and, and three other police who were taking orders from the others. One of them actually beat up the man who was holding my, the camera in this, so much so he had a bruise, and a big bruise the next day in his
0: back. Right.
1: And, uh, you know, it was just very revealing uh, what, um, you know, there are some very dark forces um, uh, that represent the Vatican at this time in history.
0: Absolutely. So, you were talking about the 95 Theses.
1: Yes, the first one is a topic you and I have touched on already, that God is both mother and father. Again, I bring—I think bringing the divine feminine back to balance the sacred masculine is so important. Um, I wrote a book last year on the hidden spirituality of men, and we have to clean up our very meaning of, of masculinity if we're going to survive as a species and if men are really going to be um, equal partners to women who have been cleaning up their their, uh, act, I think, uh, and about the divine feminine for the last 50 years or so. Another of the theses addresses the issue of the the God who is a punitive father. And I think you find this in all fundamentalism, whether you're talking about the Vatican, the Taliban, or Pat Robinson, um, all of it uh, is is, uh, anti-women, Afraid of women, afraid of the feminine, but also endorsing a punitive father, an avenging father, and I, this is not the God of Jesus at all. Um, uh, also, the, the the posting of the theses at the Basilica in Rome that I did last month. Uh, this is available on YouTube. People can uh, see that uh, event and all the policemen who came and took it, took the. Posters down, then we put them up, they took it down, we put it up. There was quite a little uh, drama going on there, even in opera.
0: Um, (laughs) We will post, we will definitely post that video on our NCR, (laughs) on New Consciousness Review site.
1: Oh, great. uh, Yes, it's telling.
0: (laughs) Tell me about the Cosmic Christ. Hmm.
1: Well, uh, I wrote a book on the Cosmic Christ a number of years ago, but it's really, I think... uh, it, part of today's scholarship, one of the wonderful things that's happening in our time, there are many wonderful things, the women's movement is one, we refer to that, but also the scholarship in, uh, about the Bible has been very useful because we've been able to distinguish now the words of Jesus in the Gospels from those words that were put into his mouth by early followers of Jesus or, or even later followers of Jesus. And that's very important to be able to distinguish the two. It doesn't mean that those words put in his mouth are not wise or useful and, and exciting, but we should know what Jesus said and what others who claim to spoke for to speak for Jesus said. And um, part of what we're learning is between Jesus and Christ that Jesus was the historical person who lived to be about thirty or thirty-three. And, um, and ha- ha- had his teachings and got himself in a lot of trouble because of his teachings and was, uh, w- was crucified for it. Now, Christ is, according to the Gospels themselves, is, is, is John 1 says Christ is the light in all things. So um, uh, we all are other Christs. Uh, wherever there is light, there is the Christ. Now, Christ was in Jesus, I believe but also in every being, because every being has a numinosity to it and a godlikeness to it and, a, and a, 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 is an image of God in some way. Nicholas of, the great 15th century mystic and scientist, said that every creature is a face, a small f of the one face, the big f uh, of the divine one. And I think that's a beautiful way of seeing it. And that's where you the cosmic Christ is present in all beings. And so uh, instead of talking about how we crucified Jesus 2,000 years ago, we should be talking about are we crucifying the Christ today in the rainforest because the rainforest is a Christ or the polar bears or any other species that's going out of existence. Uh, these are contemporary crucifixions that are going on. We should be living in the present not just in the past.
0: So you talk about uh, a schism. Oh,
1: uh, wait. There's a parallel here in Buddhism. Buddhists talk about the Buddha nature in all things. Well, that's identical to what I mean by the cosmic Christ, the Christ nature in all things. Mm-hmm. And then they, too, will talk about the historical Buddha, the Buddha who lived and taught and died. And that's just like the historical Jesus.
0: So so would you say that the 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 Christ nature is, is effectively the mystical part that unites all religions?
1: Yes, yes. It, it, very good. Yeah. The the Cosmic Christ is the is the archetype of mysticism really. It is a pattern that connects to use a an ancient term, but it actually comes from the wisdom literature of Israel. A pattern that connects. And um I, and it is as you say universal. Mhm. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't have to be called to Christ if that carries a lot of baggage with some people, which it does. Again, Buddha nature is another naming. And uh there, there an image of God is another is another naming. Mm-hmm. Shakyana is another mm-hmm. naming. Mm-hmm. So um it, it behooves us to kind of open up our vocabulary a little, uh, to realize that any all mysticism is as William James said, ineffable. Words Words don't work. My starker says we stammer whenever we talk about God or God experience. We stammer. And so no, no one word should be frozen as this is the only term because you're talking about deeply experiential uh, uh, realities and none of that can be locked down in mere words.
0: Well, you're, you're um, a, a, a passionate. Churchman, you still, um, I would guess, have deep feelings for the Catholic Church. Do you feel it can be saved?
1: Not in its present form, absolutely not. It's beyond redemption. I quote a fellow in the book who's 34 years old. He's Polish, grew up in Poland, obviously grew up Catholic. He's now in New York City doing marvelous things, working with um, street youth in New York City. It's just, it's just amazing the results he's getting. But I told him about this book and so forth, and he said to me, "He said reform. He said there's nothing left to reform. The only question is who gets the buildings." <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I think this is how the young are experiencing religion today, and again, I, I find this very hopeful because it's a real invitation to start over, to push the restart button on Christianity. And Jesus himself talked about the old wine skins that can't hold the wine anymore. Well, I think the what we recognize as the old wineskin of the Vatican and, and so forth is, uh, is leaking, leaking profoundly, and it's not redeemable. We don't have enough Band-Aids on the planet to redeem it um, in its present form. And of course, that's what evolution is, the, the reminder that all forms come and go. But mm-hmm. the essence, you know, the essence of Jesus' teaching and, and the mystics, because the mystics get so close to uh, living out uh, that teaching— uh, this deserves to to go on, but in very different form, much lighter form. We don't have to carry all these basilicas and, and mm-hmm. churches and debts on our back, or dogmas or canon laws. I think we have to begin at the grassroots again. And I think lay people have to lead. I think we, what we need is a, a complete um, distribution of uh, decision-making. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the points I make in the book that is, a bit shocking is that I use the S-word, uh, the issue of schism, mm-hmm. And I'm quoting one of the greatest theologians of our time, that was Father Skeebich, who died last year in '95. But when I last met with him about 15 years ago, he said he and many other European theologians believe the present papacy see that was John Paul II, is in schism. Well, that changes the whole picture. If the Pope is in schism and the present Pope is in schism, that means all the cardinals and yes men that they've been appointing are a schismatic church. And we who, who want to follow the basic principles of Vatican II, we're the ones not in schism because uh, the Pope does not trump a council. The council trumps the Pope. And mm-hmm. so, hey, they've gone down the detour, they've taken the wrong road. And hey, this is an invitation to to uh, apply the best principles of uh, not Vatican II only, but the Gospels themselves, and start something new.
0: And you, you say in your book that you think that the Protestant and Eastern churches should be just as concerned with this schism as the Catholic Church.
1: That's right. Well, yeah, but not only them. I think people of other faith and atheists, too. Because obviously, Catholicism because has a tremendous uh, impact around the world. It is the largest Christian body. And as I put out in the book, also, it, it was Ratzinger who got Bush elected in, in his second term uh, because of um, decisions made to uh, threaten bishops that uh, uh, a Roman Catholic politician uh, 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 is dangerous or should not be voted for if he supports gays or women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which of course, Kerry did, and so three states—Iowa, New Mexico, and Ohio—had uh, this very unusual Catholic Republican vote in that in that presidential election. If just one of them had had a more regular, more normal Catholic vote, um, uh, Kerry would have been elected, and not Bush. Wow! So this was a an interference in our democracy by foreign country, the Vatican, and were the Protestants screaming or protesting about it. Uh, it's amazing how muted that, uh, that, that news was. Mm-hmm. or oh, indeed, it was kept out of the news.
0: Yeah. When you speak of the crisis in the Catholic Church... What I'm hearing is actually describing a dynamic that we see throughout modern society, especially in politics, big industry, and banking. It's, it's the attitude of the ends justifying the means. There seems to be a total lack of compassion or sense of responsibility for others. Do you think that the answer lies in spirituality or a renewal of spirituality?
1: I certainly do. Um, I think um, that's where our integrity is born and nourished and uh, developed. And, of course, when we fail, which we all do at times, that it's uh, reconstructed and so forth, um, I think community is very important. That's why um, churches have a role to play. But community should should uh, precede any commitment to um, just dogma, or, or power structure and so forth. And you, the real failure of the, of the hierarchy, for example, to deal well with the pedophile crisis is, 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 is scary because it shows that other values other than defending children were really the decision-making um, and therefore moral basis for, um, for ignoring this crisis and indeed uh, hiding it. So... Um, You know, there's no spirituality without courage. And a lot of these bishops and and cardinals that have been appointed in the last 40 years are not men of courage. They are sycophants. They are people who who say yes to anything that the Punitive Father says. Uh, Just get in line and obey. That is why the lesson from the Nazi times is so important today, that we must put responsibility uh, before uh, comfort and obedience. And... Mm. uh, That is what spirituality is about, isn't it? It is about taking a stand about justice and about the children and about others who are endangered.
0: You know, you you did talk about, in your book, about all these priests and theologians being hounded and excommunicated while the pedophiles were protected. Do you think that Ratzinger truly believes that he has a mandate from God or is it just power and control?
1: I think it's power and control. Now, you know, what he believes, what he makes up in his mind to believe, I, I'm not in a place to judge that, but I think that it's clearly about power and control. And I end the book with that list, what I call the Wailing Wall of mm-hmm. 92 theologians and others who've been silenced and condemned, and from all over the world. It's not just an American thing. It's an international thing, this, this contemporary in- Inquisition. Previous Inquisitions were, were more or less uh, located uh, in Rome or in Spain and then in Latin America, but this one is absolutely global because of course of the globalization of of uh, of news and so forth today and they can get to you much faster today but no it 's definitely about power and uh, even when you think about what sexual abuse is it 's a power chip really mm-hmm. more than a sexual trip it 's about control so um
0: uh, so you 're talking. I talk you're talking about pulling the power back into the hands of the the grassroots, into the lay people, into the communities. You even talk about home churches. Yes,
1: definitely. That's, that's where, where things begin anew. And that's where the Christian church began, with home churches, storefront churches, and of course the catacombs. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I think that that is that kind of return to the grassroots that that is essential, and the next generation uh, deserves a much healthier religion. And it's not going to come from top down, it just isn't. Uh, It has to come from the bottom up.
0: Tell us about some of... I I, I remember hearing you speak in Washington, D.C. a few years back about your youth initiative. Uh, this is a great example of how people are actually putting their spirituality into action. Can you tell us about it?
1: Well, we did a pilot program for two years in Oakland, California, where I live, um, to see if we couldn't reinvent education from the inner city out. You know, 72% of black boys today in America are not graduating from high school. 72%. So I ask, well now, does that mean these boys are dumb, or is education dumb? that we're defining it in a way that is boring to young people today. Um, and so uh, I worked with uh, young people, teenagers, high school age, who were dropping out for the most part. And the key was creativity, that we had them making movies, DVDs, about things they were passionate about, but also bringing in values so that the values were mixed in with, uh, with um, the, the things they were excited about. And and the result was amazing. Uh, 100% of them said they wanted to stay in school now because they rediscovered the joy of learning. I remember a black kid who was a senior turned to me one day and he said, this is the first time in four years of high school that anyone's asked me to express myself creatively. Mm. Creativity is much more important than exams, let me tell you, Uh, when it comes to exciting the the mind and, and exciting young people to get excited about learning and uh, there 's just too much emphasis on tests in our culture today in our schools, and not enough on um, uh, wisdom that 's inside these young people that needs to come out and needs to be celebrated once you open up the mind, they will be learning the rest of their life. But if you never open it up, if you discourage them by dumping nothing but tests on them and they feel unconnected to the whole process, they will leave and of course. When they leave, without the education, uh, all of society suffers from that. Uh, A a jail is much more expensive than a school,
0: than Mm. going to school. And by extension, you use the same approach to renewing spirituality through your cosmic masses, right?
1: Well, that's right. Again, creativity is so important, and when I became an Episcopal priest, I was i did it in order to work with young people who were bringing rave into liturgy in in northern England. so i brought this this idea to america and we've had over ninety of these masses now we call them the cosmic mass where people dance instead of sitting benches and there are a lot of images through vj's and so forth and of course we have dj's and rap we're using these contemporary languages which are marvelous languages for celebration uh, to, to tell the deep stories of our, our traditions. And the result is people come of all ages and of all denominations, and um, it's very powerful to be able to dance your prayers and just instead of just sit and read them from a book. Oh, my goodness, that's boring.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, the Afri- African-American churches knew that a long time ago.
1: Exactly, and so do Native Americans. You know, you don't bring a book into a sweat lodge.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> so... That. Well, you've already written 28 books, and my guess is you're working on another one. <laughs> what are you working on now?
1: Oh. Well, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a film that grew out of this Pope book, actually. I, I talk about the silenced ones in that Pope book, and I want to interview some of these silenced ones, especially in Latin America. Uh, before they die, people like Bishop and, you know, Leonardo Buff and so forth, because they were so courageous and therefore spiritual in their struggle uh, to give birth to new forms of church, I want to interview them not just about the past and their struggles, but about the future. What, how do they envision the church of the future? How do they envision religion in the future and Christianity in the future? Uh, one thing they've told me already, but not directly, but by email, is that um, that uh, they're working more with in terms of humanity now and less in terms of the church. Mm. that uh, yeah, that they've in a way, in their own way, I think, have given up on the church reforming itself. And as Bishop Casadellas says, he says, I don't think the church is a society. It's just meant to be 11, uh, 11 to inspire people in society. We don't need a second society. There's mm. only one society that's human beings, and I would add, of course, human beings with ecosystems and with other beings working together and religion's task is to inspire and to awaken and and to respect, teach respect in a sense of the sacred. So anyway, I want to make that movie and then I want to do it with young people. I want to bring young people with me, people in their twenties. And I want to have groups of people uh, in their twenties in circles, say in the United States, Brazil, Italy, Ireland, talking about what do you need from religion and what do you not need from religion? You know, religion has to become so lighter to travel in the 21st century. Let's let the young people talk about what, what they, their spiritual needs are. I'm going to get all that on film and then, I suppose, r- write a book in the, in the context of it, too, because I'll be interviewing these pe- young people and old people, elders and youth together. Um, and I'm sure, you know, a movie, you'd leave a lot on the cutting floor. So I suppose mm-hmm. I'll be wanting mm-hmm. to um, put a book out that has their wisdom in it, both the young and the elders.
0: Well, I look forward to reviewing it. So there.
1: <laughs> well, I would like that too, and I, I hope it won't be depressing, but just the other <laughs> way around.
0: I can't, I can't think of anything more uplifting than what you described.
1: Great. Good. Good. So Good.
0: tell us how uh, our listeners find out more about you. What's your website? What are you up to?
1: Yeah, matthewfox.org. It's very simple, two T's in Matthew. And then there's also a Facebook page that you can find there. And then the the YouTube events that we've alluded to in this conversation are Mm -hmm. there. And, um, yeah, you can go there and find it. You can get the the book, folks who are, I suppose, Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com places like that. Or
0: ncreview.com. We have a link to it on our website as well. Great. Along with our review. Thank you. Well, thank you for being with us. It's been absolutely fascinating, and I forgive you for having depressed me. (laughs) I, I read the book cover to cover. I couldn't put it down, but boy. Anyway, I really recommend it. The Pope's War, Why Ratzinger's Secret Crusade Has Imperiled the Church, and How It Can Be Saved, or probably more to the point, How Our Societies Can Be Saved.
1: Yes, what can be saved, yes.
0: Thank you very much, Matthew.
1: Thank you, Marianne. I've enjoyed it a lot. Well thank you for having a program like this where oh. <laughs> ideas can be spoken and shared.
0: Yeah, that's what it's all about. So until next time, I will leave you with these quotes for the day from the wit of Ogden Nash that have an ironic resonance with today's discussion. One is, oh, what a tangled web do parents weave when they think that their children are naive. And the other one, there is only one way to achieve happiness on this terrestrial ball, and that is to either have a clear conscience or have none at all. Thank you, and God bless. Goodbye.